Welcome to Voices of Taos. My name is Laura Martin-Baseman, and I'm the producer of this new podcast from the Taos News. Every week, we will be bringing you a voice from our Taos community. Welcome to Voices of Taos. My name is Jeffrey Plant, assistant editor at Taos News. My guest today is Dr. Tim Moore, who spent the past 15 years delivering babies and providing women's health care at Holy Cross Medical Center's Women's Health Institute in Taos. He was chief of medical staff at Holy Cross for six years, during which time he also sat on the hospital's board of directors. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We last spoke when I interviewed you for a story about your retirement, which our listeners can find at TausNews.com. And uh, you estimated you delivered about 5,000 babies over the course of your career, 1,000 of them in Taos. You've also provided women's health care to thousands of Tausanias. Tell us briefly, what, what does an OBGYN do, and what was that experience like in a small rural community like Taos? Well, uh, obstetrics and gynecology is a sub-branch of, in medicine. It's one of the major ones, along with general surgery and internal medicine and so forth. But it is focused on obstetrics, which is the care of pregnant patients and delivery of them and postpartum care. And gynecology is centered around care for women throughout their ages and involves a number of different aspects of care. It can include gynecologic cancers. It can include general infertility issues, etc. But it's focused on the care of women's health. And you're stepping away from being a full-time OBGYN, uh, but you plan to stay involved in the field. Is there a particular legacy or message you'd like to leave your colleagues? Yes, and I think I'm trying to leave that to them in the form of a book that I'm working on with a colleague uh, that we've had uh, in our thoughts for many decades, actually, and now we, or at least I finally have the time to work on it. But we've always felt that there's a certain aspect of medical education that is brief and yet is extremely important, and that is how do we actually interact and communicate with our patients. We may know all we need to do or all we need to know about a particular disease process, but that problem is different in the eyes of individual patients that come from many different walks of life, uh, levels of education. Uh, Some have fear about anything relating to health. So you have to be able, in our opinion, to assess that and to be able to establish a certain communication skill to be able to be effective as a total physician, not just somebody caring for the physical illness, but for the emotional and family and cultural aspects that come with every patient. Can you give an example of how you might do that with a patient in Taos? Oh, well, I have, I think, one of the first patients that I saw here was uh, a patient who came to my office with a gynecologic cancer, but it was a fairly early stage and minor one. And normally we would be able to treat that effectively with surgery and with specialists like GYN oncologists. But this patient was 
different because she was very elderly and she had a lot of other medical illnesses, uh, including diabetes that was so severe that it had affected her eyesight and her ability to ambulate and her kidneys were failing. And she wanted to have her family involved in the decision-making. That's not always true, but in her case, and I think some of the cultural aspects of Taos, family is very important. So we met with all of her family, which we had to move to a much bigger room because it involved daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters in the arms. And they were looking at their wonderful matriarch and wanting everything done. And this would be challenging because it's not just a simple surgery for somebody with all of her medical problems. But she was listening to them, and we were listening to their requests and answering their questions. And she finally spoke up and said, I don't know what all you are talking about. Look at me. Look at my health problems. I'm not going to go down there and do all that. And they argued a little bit, and I was sort of the arbitrator. And eventually we came to an understanding that it's ultimately – the matriarch's choice, and we all led to understand that. But I think it was a much different conversation than I might have had back east when, when I was taking care of patients where they isolate to themselves and don't involve family as much. So are we talking about bedside manner, essentially? Yeah, I think so. That's that's oftentimes the, the tradition of what we talk about in medicine is what's your bedside manner. And that all stems from people rounding on people in the hospital and sitting next to their bed. So it's a bedside communication. And I think that lends to a little bit of why I even entered medicine because I did not, when I was in college, was a, I was an environmental science major and then a biologist and a zoologist. I had no interest in medicine at all until I met my mentor who was a zoologist and was my graduate student advisor but also was a surgeon. And I would go with him on rounds and witness the skill that he had, not in the operating room, although he did have that skill too, but how well he would communicate with his patients, including not pulling up a chair, but moving things from the foot of the bed and actually sitting on the end of the bed and connecting in a way with patients that I still don't think has been surpassed by any of my other teachers. I've always aspired to it, and maybe I've come close, but I, I think he was probably the epitome of what I consider the consummate physician. I feel like I should note that uh, Dr. Casey Smith, the OBGYN who was hired to fill your position at Women's Health Institute, uh, also has a background in Marine biology, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, is, is this a continuity? Uh, <laughs> I think it's by a pure coincidence, but uh, it is interesting. Yeah, I think her background is in fisheries biology. Uh, but yes, it's, it's interesting uh, of that connection between the two of us. And so you've been an OBGYN for 41 years um, in, I think, the Northwest and New England. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some advancements or, uh, you know, sort of significant uh, changes that you've seen in, in medicine and specifically related to, to women's health care? 
Well, I think for women's healthcare, which I can probably speak to uh, more easily, it's certainly in obstetrics, for example, the evolvement of obstetrical ultrasound. When I was first a resident, I can remember seeing my first ultrasound. It looked somewhat like a blizzard. Uh, and I thought in order to see the image that everybody else seemed to see, you had to sort of move your head back and forth and squint and focus, and then suddenly this image emerged that looked somewhat like a baby. Uh, now it is so detailed and precise that a person that has never seen an ultrasound before can look and say, oh, well, there's the baby, and there are the arms, and there are the fingers, and there it's, it's the detail, like television technology has advanced greatly. And for obstetrics, I think, if we didn't have ultrasound, uh, I, I don't know what exactly obstetricians were able to do before. It's very limited, but ultrasound gives us that look at that second patient. That how does, how does that how does that help you when you're making decisions about care or trying to diagnose uh, any potential issues sure. that might crop up for the mother, the baby? Yeah, well, the first thing is, of course, trying to answer a mother's concerns about, is my baby okay? Uh, does it have a birth defect uh, or a problem that is going to result in an unhealthy pregnancy and an unhealthy child? So, 99 times out of 100 or maybe even 998 out of 1,000, that ultrasound is be able to reassure her because we're visual people. We can say that we did a blood test and the blood test says your baby is normal. Well, they'll accept that to a certain degree, but being able to actually see your baby and see all those features and have them pointed out to you in detail is much more reassuring. Um, it also helps us follow certain higher-risk pregnancies where we're concerned about growth, for example. We had very little way of assessing growth of a fetus without ultrasound. Ultrasound, we have precise way of measuring uh, growth and uh, seeing the placenta and is it doing its job. And now it's even as far as measuring Doppler studies of vessels, arteries, not only in the placenta, but in the umbilical cord and in the fetus itself, which is a tremendous insight into the well-being. So these are all, uh, ultrasound is a great advantage. Genetics is another advantage, advantage that's taken place in obstetrics over the years. What about uh, maybe not necessarily negative changes, but but changes in, in the medical profession that have you know, presented more challenges for patients and physicians? Well, I think that lies in just the, I guess, a broad spectrum analysis would be the economics of healthcare in the United States. Uh, access to insurance, uh, access to Medicaid or Medicare, uh, is, seems easy enough, but this is one of our problems still is that, and this was pointed out by the Health Care Act that Obama introduced, that there's 43 million Americans out there that do not have adequate health insurance. And it's interesting because it's a middle group. The, the extreme of people who have very little or almost no resources are candidates for Medicaid. And then we have people who have 
funding from their business or their own resources to pay for private insurance. And then there's the middle group that isn't eligible for Medicaid because they make too much money, but they don't make enough to pay five to $12,000 a year to get health insurance. So they don't, and they gamble that their health is good enough to not need it. Uh, so I think that's a problem, and the cost of medical insurance is extravagant. The, the other thing is pharmaceuticals and the costs of prescriptions, uh, especially affecting elderly patients who are on fixed limited income, and Medicare covers some of it, but not all of it. And uh, I've been witness to, to the effect that it has on these elderly people paying out their entire Social Security check in order to get a prescription. All right, we're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back with Dr. Tim Moore. We'll be back to Voices of Taos after a quick message from our publisher. Hello, I'm Chris Baker, the publisher of the Taos News. I hope you're enjoying the latest episode of Voices of Taos. Our talented staff works hard to bring you the best in local news and entertainment, and we couldn't do it without your support. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Taos News. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. By subscribing, you have 24-hour access to our online edition and receive the paper delivered to your home or business. And you also get 25 magazines covering the finest of northern New Mexico, including Taos Women, Tradiciones, and the best of Taos. To start your subscription, visit us at taosnews.com today. And I appreciate your support. Welcome back to Voices of Taos. My name is Jeffrey Plant. My guest today is Dr. Tim Moore. Uh, during the break, we were talking about the expense of health care. And I know previously we spoke for a separate story about the cost of equipment at hospitals, the cost of malpractice insurance, costs have just gone up and up and up. And I think that's something that you've seen over the course of your career that maybe has had an impact on the way that uh, sort of medical services in a community like Taos, for example, have, have changed over the years. What, what are the impacts of, of high cost malpractice insurance, of you know, equipment costs at hospitals, that sort of thing? Well, it's, it's tremendous. Yeah, for example, if we need a new piece of equipment at our hospital, it's not that it's cheaper than if a major hospital in a major city has to buy the same equipment, but the resources they have versus the resources we have are quite significantly different. So if we're going to practice state-of-the-art current medicine, we need to have the same equipment and facilities that any of these larger institutions. And I know we were talking about obstetrical ultrasound, so that's within the Department of Radiology. And radiology is a, has been a, a tremendous advance, not just in obstetrics with ultrasound, but you have to remember that when I started, there were no such things as CT scans or MRIs. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that's commonplace, and an MRI gives detailed images that are about as close to looking at the real anatomy as you can. But these are very expensive tests. You injure your shoulder, so you get an MRI. Well, that's five, $6,000. And that's just the cost that the hospital charges. 
because those pieces of equipment are incredibly expensive and to maintain them is costly. Uh, ultrasounds for obstetrics, to get one of high quality is sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. And their life is maybe three to five years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the cost of just having the equipment, and we're not even talking about the trained personnel to run the equipment, is is very high. And that has to be paid for by something. Well, it's through government insurance, Medicaid and Medicare, or private insurance. And if that doesn't cover it, for example, the cost of care to Medicaid pay for uh, obstetrics for a pregnancy, they pay less than what it costs to take care of that patient. So that has to be made up somewhere. And I think for smaller hospitals, that's a bigger struggle because the cost is still there, but the resources are less. So then you have to seek out uh, grants or GRT taxes uh, or other revenue sources that are maybe uh, non-traditional or people don't think of as hospitals is having in order to make up the difference. Yeah, capital outlay, for example, through the New Mexico legislature, mm -hmm. which uh, has, I think, before considered uh, writing or passing legislation uh, to help control malpractice costs. What what kind of effect has that had on the way that physicians practice? You know, with individual clinics and mm -hmm. at at hospitals like Holy Cross. Well, one thing about Holy Cross, and this is true around the country and is another change in the evolution of medicine, it, early on in my career, the majority of physicians were private physicians. They had their own business. They were their own doctor. When people referred to going and hanging up your shingle, that was you, Dr. Moore, going and opening up an office, and that was yours, and you were the the business head along with being the medical head. That has changed because the cost of doing that is, is extreme. And so now it's becoming more the majority of physicians are employed by hospitals, as was I for most of my career. Um, and that means they carry that responsibility, including malpractice insurance. Uh, and malpractice insurance for obstetricians is extremely high. It's, here in New Mexico, it's somewhere between sixty dollars to $80,000 a year. If you're in a place like Florida or New York, it can be as high as $160,000 a year. And that's just insurance premiums that you pay. Uh, here in New Mexico, it has become so problematic in this way. When malpractice insurance companies have to make a payout to a successful case, I guess you would call it, they're now talking about millions and millions of dollars. And that means that they are not making a profit off of those revenues that they're getting from individuals. So insurance companies leave a state and that's what's happening. And then that puts Holy Cross Hospital in the situation of scrambling to try to find uh, an insurance carrier that will cover their physicians. And since there's fewer in number, 
the reins of cost and expense are in the hands of the insurance carrier, and that's what's happening. So all of a sudden, in order to continue coverage, the hospital has to come up with hundreds of thousands of dollars more just to pay insurance premiums to keep their physicians practicing. This this leads me to wonder if there's a solution to all these challenges in American healthcare, as well, briefly as you can. Yeah. Well, one is to have the legislation limit uh, malpractice premiums, and also to set up a different kind of system for malpractice, where reasonable outcomes for negligent cases certainly pass through, but exorbitant rewards for these, uh, which damage everything, may not be something that can be sustained. Um, the I think the other impact that I do not have an easy solution for is how malpractice affects the way physicians practice. If you have a patient walk into your office and you're concerned about, I'm going to do something wrong and therefore I don't want to, so I'm going to order as many tests as I can and some of which I know are probably not going to be useful. But if I don't and I miss that one in 100,000, I may be liable. And there's nothing more heart-rendering to a physician than to, to, to be sued for malpractice. It's devastating and it uh, uh, affects you tremendously because you don't want that to happen. And I really would like to believe anyway that uh, physicians enter medicine because they don't want to purposely harm patients. They want to help patients, but it's complex and it's difficult and we're human and things happen. And on the patient side, uh, just bluntly, do we need a single-payer system nationally? Well, I would advocate for that and I know it's quite controversial, but that takes away that anxiousness about did I order enough? Did I do enough? Did I Do I have to look at what coverage the patient has? And it, it takes that equation out. It's back to what the reason why I became an employed physician. I don't have to look at that. I look at the patient and say, I'm doing for her, in my case, what needs to be done because I'm not looking at what insurance she has and whether she can pay it or not or what you know, what my malpractice premium is because that's covered. So it eliminates all those other things. I can get back to doing what I wanted to do, which was just to take care of patients. And I wanted to jump to a slightly different topic, but northern New Mexico is a, and New Mexico, rural New Mexico particularly, has a strong tradition of midwifery. Uh, and I know you work closely with midwives. You have, I think, throughout your whole career, mm-hmm. including at the Women's Health Institute, um, can you tell us what kind of impact midwives had on your early career? And, oh, sure. Yeah, and also what your experience with midwives has been like in northern New Mexico. Absolutely. I uh, first encountered midwives when I was an intern, and that's the first year that you're out in kind of on-the-job training. And you have a lot of book learning, but you have very little in the way of experience. So one of the first things, of course, as an obstetrical resident is you're learning how to do a normal delivery. 
And they had on staff a number of midwives that were doing their deliveries in the hospital setting. And they informed me that I, as an intern, was supposed to attend those deliveries as the physician MD representative. And I remember asking, I said, well, why would I be the one that would be the responsible member in there because I have the least amount of experience and they have a lot more experience? Don't ask any questions. This is the way it's done. Just do it. So I would approach these midwives and say, well, I don't know. If, if something happens here, I'm not so sure that I can help you at all, but I'm supposed to be here. And they were very nice and they said, well, look at it differently. Look at it as an opportunity for you to learn how to approach the care of the normal healthy patient in a different way. And that was a wise lesson and I, I learned how to do normal obstetrics with midwives. So I always had a respect for them and that's why I continued in that tradition through all of the jobs I've done. I've always worked with midwives, including the midwives we have here. And has that been a unique experience in, in, in any respect here in Taos? Uh, I think in Taos, it has, there's been a long tradition of midwifery and a birthing center, which uh, sadly um, uh, what had kind of disappeared. I know we tried to absorb that birth center and tried to recreate it, but the obstacles primarily by government regulation was almost prohibitive. Uh, but I think midwifery offers that uh, plateau that's different from home delivery, which is okay in the right scenario versus the intensity that people feel about a hospital-based delivery uh, and allows something that's sort of in between, that's a mix between those two. And one last thing, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't ask you a I think a sense of humor is important in your profession. And I've heard that you uh, sometimes break the ice and uh, would kind of try to introduce some levity into maybe a situation that might be scary or uh, just tense uh, by doing voices of cartoon characters <laughs> while you're in an exam room or even surgery. And uh, I was really hoping that you could you know, put yourself back in the exam room and communicate with a nurse or a patient, ask for a speculum or whatever you'd like, maybe in the voice of Yogi Bear. <laughs> oh, I was always better at his little companion. Boo-boo? Boo-boo. Boo-boo it is. So, uh, Yogi, um, I, don't, I don't think we can take that picnic basket. Uh, probably not as good as I am there, but uh, it... The operating room or even a delivery room can be quite intense and to do something to just break that intensity is, is, can be helpful. And sometimes just doing that are old jingles from when I was growing up. Give us one. Oh, the pops are sweeter and the taste is true. They're shot with sugar through and through. Sugar pops are tops. <laughs> Dr. Tim Moore, <laughs> thank you very much and good luck on your next endeavor. We we're looking forward to seeing this book. Oh, put a, okay. little, put a little pressure on you there. Well, one chapter is already done, but uh, we only have 15 more to go. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Moore.
Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I uh, respect the Taos News here and the Taos community, which honored me by letting me take care of you over all those years. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Voices of Taos, a podcast by the Taos News. This episode was produced by Laura Martin Baseman. Music by Miles Bonney. Please join us next week for another episode of Voices of Taos.